2: They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, plus risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Hey,
1: everyone. It's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that, well, you probably already knew this if if you've been with Bulletproof for a while, but studies are now showing that pregnant women with a history of depression are 40% less likely to relapse if they practice mindfulness. That includes meditation, breathing, and yoga, or maybe in combination with cognitive therapy. Uh, That same research is now, or the same researchers are now testing a drug-free treatment on non-pregnant women. I'm pretty sure that you could predict the results. It's also true, by the way, completely unrelated to the cool fact of the day, but this is just a knowledge bomb from the Better Baby book, that copper deficiency is also tied to postpartum depression. And the gross way to fix that is what they used to do, which was eating the placenta. The more common way to fix it now would be take your copper supplements in the last, uh, the end of pregnancy and while you start nursing. But hey, you know, whatever, whatever flows to your (laughs) boat.
2: What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body? You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io dave for a 7-day free trial.
1: Today's topic is about meditation for productivity. You can actually do less and accomplish more, and our guest is one of the world's leading experts in meditation, which is kinda cool. Uh, She's the founder of Ziva Meditation, and uh, her name is Emily Fletcher. Emily, welcome to the show.
3: It is a real pleasure to be here. As I was just telling you, I geeked out on all of your podcasts. I think I might have listened to about ninety percent in the past few months. So it feels a little surreal to be on the show.
1: Well, I'm I'm honored that you you had that investment of time. Uh, one of the one of the things that that I actually hold myself accountable for is that if given that that there's about fourteen million downloads of the show now, and if you multiply that times the length of the show, that's like somewhere around like fifty human lifetimes. So if <laughs> If I'm producing bad content, it's like I killed fifty people. So like, I'm pretty picky about consumers. So very high standards. No need to stress. Thank you for
3: that accountability.
1: <laughs> one of the things that made me feel happy about inviting you on is, is you know, we've actually had a chance to hang out, and you've also like taught at Google, Harvard Business School Summit Series, where we've both spoken, Viacom, Awesomeness Fest, where we've both been, uh, Relativity Media, and you've got like Coca-Cola. So you're all over the place. <laughs> and you've taught with John Gabriel and Eckhart Tolle, who are like serious A player meditation people. So you're you're up there. And so I'm actually honored to have you on the show because people who spend their life meditating generally are kind of hard to get a hold of for some reason.
3: <laughs> because their eyes are closed and they're wearing patchouli in caves somewhere?
1: <laughs> I, I always thought it was because they had armies of meditation assistants keeping the world at bay. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs>
3: No, I like to be in the land. I, I think you should meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. And so, I'm happy to be
1: here. That is super cool. Now, you're actually a, a 10 year Broadway veteran. So, how did you go from like being on stage in a super high stress environment to being a meditation teacher? Because it's a non obvious transition. Like, what happened to do that? <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's a pretty unlikely transition from Broadway showgirl to meditation teacher. But as you said, I was on Broadway for 10 years, and it was what I wanted to do since I was eight years old. And I really thought that once I got on Broadway, that my whole life was going to be sunshine and roses. I mean, I was picturing martinis with Liza at Sardis, and instead it was girls eating tuna fish out of a can and complaining about their bunions. And I was like, this is not my dream. And so I had the very fortunate experience of getting to learn at a pretty young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. Ooh, right? That's kinda deep. <laughs> well, I am a meditation teacher, so I try. <laughs> um but you know I think when you have big goals and it's for most people, it can take a lifetime to achieve them. It's very easy to be under the illusion of I'll be happy when I'll be happy when I make a million dollars, I'll be happy when I make this company, I'll be happy when I have this kid or get married or whatever your fill in the blank is. And because I was able to achieve this life goal at 22, strangely, like three weeks later, it was the saddest I'd ever been. And I didn't understand then, like I didn't, I wasn't, the lesson hadn't really set in. Um, so I just thought, well, it must be the next show, and then the next show, or the next boyfriend, and then I did I did this for ten years, and then my last Broadway show was a chorus line you know, the one with like the gold and the kicking and it's a show about a show. Mm -hmm. And I was understudying three of the lead roles. And I imagine that most of your audience doesn't know what that means. So it basically means you show up to the theater and you have no idea who you're going on for. Sometimes I would start the show as one character and then halfway through, they would switch me to a different character. Or I would just be chilling in my dressing room doing my taxes. And they would get on the loudspeaker and say, Emily Fletcher, we need you on the stage. And I would start panicking because I wouldn't know which costume to put on. (laughs) So I grabbed three leotards ran down seven flights of stairs. One of the dressers would throw me in a costume. I would get out on stage and I'm not kidding. Sometimes I would be on stage before I knew which role I was going to play. And then you're launched into a six page song. And it's, it's to be honest, like pretty terrifying. It's not a complaint, but I'm not great at it. Some people are excellent at it. I was not.
1: <laughs> All right. I have to ask. So you weren't in meditation at the time. What did you do with that state of terror? Like talk about stage fright, like that's just over the top. So, so how did you handle that? How did you go out there and perform?
3: I mean, to be honest, one of the roles I was very good at, and that was the role I was hired to play because they wanted me to take over for the role. The other two, well, one I was medium at, and the other one I straight up sucked at. Like, I was so bad at playing this role. And there's really, it's really vulnerable and embarrassing to be on a Broadway stage in a leotard with a downlight and knowing that you're sucking at your job. Like, it's just like, and you're doing your best, but it's still not good enough. And I remember I went on the first time for this one role. It was Val. If anybody knows the show, she's the one that sings tits and ass. And afterwards I, I had a matinee and I was going to do the night show and in between shows I'm sitting in my dressing room, I'm listening to Eckhart Tolle's the power of now, like on repeat, like rocking myself in a ball in my dressing room. <laughs> And I was like, wait a minute, this is definitely not my dream. And and thankfully, this amazing woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room. And she was understudying five of the leads and she seemed to be nailing it. I mean, every song this woman sang was a celebration. Every dance this woman did was a celebration. Every bite of food she ate, she would say, Oh, this is sensational. Uh, she was Australian. Meditation <laughs> doesn't give you a bad Australian accent. And I said, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. And I didn't believe her because this is almost 10 years ago. And I was like, yeah, it's just dumb and a waste of time. And so I, kept having insomnia. I started going gray at 26 years old. I couldn't sleep through the night, uh, for 18 months. I was getting sick. I was getting injured. And so finally it got so bad that I went to her and I was like, I got to try something. So I went along to this intro to meditation talk. I liked what I heard. I signed up for this four day course. It was an hour and a half a day for four days. I trained myself to be a self-sufficient meditator. And then I stopped getting sick. I stopped getting injured. It cured my insomnia. I'm not kidding. Wow. On the first day. And, uh, then I'm actually, I'm 36 now and I don't have gray hair, but I was like legitimately going gray when I started. And I was 27 when I started, I think. Hold on, hold on, And that is
1: not actually your color hair.
3: No, I dye my hair. I was like, Come on, you're but, the coolest
1: hair I've ever seen. But like,
3: <laughs> thank you so much. I wish it was my per- my own hair, but <laughs> I, I did. Sorry, go to the I know salon- it was totally
1: rude for me to say that, but I'm like, oh my god, you have the most awesome hair. So I said,
3: thank you. Um, I think it's a legit question <laughs> because I do dye my hair, but I just went to the salon like three days ago, and they have to use a certain color if you're gray, yeah. and they have to use a different color if you're not. And as of yet, they don't have to use the gray All color right, so on your me. Your it's aren't gray. I totally believe you. <laughs> <laughs> when it grows out, I'll send you a picture. <laughs> Um, but basically like it is cure my insomnia. Stop going gray. Stop getting sick. Stop getting injured. And I was like, I don't understand why everyone doesn't do this thing. It's relatively easy to do. It's a relatively low investment considering what you're getting out of it. And it made my life so much better. Improved my performance so dramatically that I, I said, you know, I have to teach people how to do this. So I left Broadway in 2009. I went to India, I went to Rishikesh, India, which is in the foothills of the Himalayas. And I began what became a three year training process to teach this. I was not an India the whole time. I finished in LA, which is almost like India. And <laughs> nowadays in Venice, it actually is. Uh, and I, I graduated about three years ago and started Ziva. I'm here at Ziva in New York City, and I started an online meditation training. And to be honest, it's the most rewarding, exciting thing I've ever done. I've taught over a thousand people to meditate, and like you said, I've taught a bunch of companies and schools. And it it strangely feels so much more creative and so much more rewarding than even doing what I thought was my life dream.
1: So you, you're you're enjoying being a yoga or yoga or a meditation teacher more so than yoga.
3: Uh, yes, I am. So,
1: all right. Why do you think you enjoy it more versus what you did before? I mean, you're in front of large numbers of people both times. You know, you were, you know, you were dancing and singing and like, what's different now?
3: I feel like I'm more of service now. Yeah. And that's not to say that performers are not of service. They are, and they serve a really important function in our society. I think that a good performance can heal people or give people a catharsis or make them laugh. So it's not the performance is not of service, but it does when you're in it, it feels much more selfish. It feels so much more self-serving because it's my headshots and my agent and did I book the job? And you know, you're just constantly, it's very challenging to get out of that seeking mentality of this, I'll be happy when syndrome. And now it feels like, am being able to share my unique gifts with a very relevant need of the time. Um, I think that, you know, almost any of the world's problems, if you boil it down, it can be linked to a, a problem in consciousness or an imbalance in consciousness. You know, the people who are moving the money around the planet, you know, if they're addicted to money, then this is going to create this disparity in wealth. The people who are creating the world's seeds and food, if they're addicted to money, this is going to allow them to produce a lower quality crop uh, for a higher yield gain. Um, you know, we don't actually have like a hunger problem; we have a distribution problem. And so, in my mind, I feel like if we can shift the level of consciousness of the people who are really making these decisions, I feel like we can have a very uh, powerful, and, and I would even say fast global impact. So,
1: so less ego and more service made it more satisfying for you?
3: Uh, for me personally, yeah, feeling yeah, feeling like I was using my gifts to serve the need of the time. So the,
1: the reason I'm asking that is uh, Stephen Kotler, who wrote The Rise of Superman, one of the guys behind the Flow Genome Project, uh, came on actually as the, the keynote speaker at the Bulletproof Conference last year, uh, as well as as a guest on Bulletproof Radio, and we talked about how being of service puts you in a flow state more easily. But I also imagine that being terrified going on stage with all this stuff, like once you go on stage, you get past it, and you, you go to an, kind of an altered state, and you're like, okay, I'm dancing, I'm moving, I'm doing it right, I might be second-guessing myself, but somehow you you do it. Um, at least fear of death make, does that for a lot of people, and going on stage is equal to fear of death for a lot of people, especially with all the, the chaos. So. Are you in a flow state when you teach? Are you in a flow state when you create uh, programs? Is flow a part of your life now that you're off stage?
3: Absolutely. And to me, this is one of the biggest benefits of meditation is that in the style of meditation that I teach, it's actually a way to take your right brain to the gym. And, and I know that right brain, left brain is a gross oversimplification, but I think that it's, it's nice to just have a talking point. If, if we look at left brain being the part of you that's in charge of the past and the future, your critical thought, your analytical thought, your fear, your fight or flight. And the right brain is that flow state. Right brain is the present moment awareness, your intuition, your creativity, uh, your feeling of connectedness, music, like all of these things are right brain activities. And in the style of meditation that I teach, you're quite literally taking your right brain to the gym. And so just the practice itself has really helped with that. But, you know, they say, if you want to master something, teach it. And so every time I teach, I'm learning more about the subject itself. And it's lovely when the content is a right brain facilitator and the very act of teaching can also be a right brain phenomenon because every student is different. Every talk is different. And And I do feel like that. I mean, one of the big things that I, um, I want to say preach, but that's not the word I want to use. But one of the, one of my big talking points is this this idea of the power of surrender. And I know that sounds a little hippy dippy, but really that's flow state. (laughs) Like surrender is just sort of like the feminine hippy dippy way of saying flow state because it's, it's you letting go of your idea of how you think things should go so that you're able to surrender to how nature wants to use you and, and your right brain. I like to think about it like the supercomputer like the right brain is the piece of us that plugs into this giant, um, you know, like cloud computer of creativity or the collective consciousness or the super brain, whatever you want to call it.
1: So so there's definitely some sort of connectedness to others that that comes out of of that part of the brain that that you don't get when you're sort of, if you think of yourself as a meat robot, like I will be logical, (laughs) like you can do a lot with logic, but being happy isn't something you do with logic, right?
3: Mm. And also your left brain is, it's limited, you know, it's limited by the only information that you've been able to consume in this lifetime. But the right brain, if it's connecting to this, you know, collective consciousness or the super brain, then you're going to have more information. You're going to be able to operate on instinct and intuition. And and when you really start to talk to the world's leaders, you know, the people, the CEOs of the companies, the, um, political heads, they're oftentimes operating on instinct in a way that, uh, people I think often try to emulate. I have this blog, uh, or it's a video blog actually. So called, are you uh, captain Kirk or Mr. Spock? <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think that, you know, a lot of people are controlled by their left brain and I believe that, I mean, captain Kirk is the captain, right? Like you want your right brain, you want your intuition to be king. It doesn't make the left brain or the analytical mind irrelevant, but ideally we want to, um, we want the, the intuition to be king.
1: When I had a chance to work uh, for a little while on Sand Hill road as a, a VC, um, uh, I, this is going back five six years I did a bunch of reading about like what makes world-class investors and all that and it's funny like the really really good ones even if they have mbas and spreadsheets everywhere they they talk about the gut like, like they, they just know and mm-hmm. if you're not meditating you probably aren't plugged into the place where your body knows stuff that your left brain doesn't know and and that's one of the things that I got when I started doing meditation and breath work was like oh wow like There's actually a signal in all that stuff I was ignoring before, and and if you can plug into it, it's cool. Mm -hmm. So you have a very specific way of doing it, and you call it Ziva meditation. But what is Ziva meditation? Like, what is it? What's different about it? And how does it facilitate that plugging in?
3: Yeah. So at Ziva, we do use a combination of mindfulness and something um, called Vedic meditation. V-E-D-I-C comes from the Sanskrit word Veda, which means knowledge. And Vedic meditation, I'll start with that because that's really like the foundation and the base of what we teach. Um, And then I incorporate mindfulness techniques so that people can use that in their waking state. Um, But Vedic meditation is a 6,000 year old practice. It comes from Northern India. And one of the things that I think makes it unique and special is that it was made for people with busy minds and busy lives it's not made for monks and mindfulness is actually derivative of a monastic practice meaning you know it was made for people who live in caves and are um, reclusive and even celibate by nature and that's less than one percent of the world's population is celibate or monastic by nature the other 99 percent of us are what we call householders in india which basically means so you have a job so you have kids so you have stuff to do Hold and on, you want I, to be
1: if you're productive. married with kids isn't that the same as celibacy
3: I don't know. I get married in about 27 days, so I'll tell you then.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, that's awesome.
3: Congrats. (laughs) (laughs) Looks, sounds like I have a lot to look forward to. (laughs) Um, so yeah, basically it means like either you live in society or you don't. And, and so this, this householder style of meditation, this was big news to me when I first started learning about it because I thought, well, whatever monks are doing, it must be so much more powerful, right? It must be so much more, um, Mm -hmm beneficial because they're monks. They must be like vibrating or levitating or something, but it's actually the other way around. If you have a job and kids and stuff to do, you have less time in your day with which to meditate. So you actually want to do a practice that is more powerful. You want to go in and really clean house, get rid of the stress in your nervous system. So when you come out of the meditation, you can perform at the top of your game. So in the style of meditation that I teach, you're, you're doing a few things, but the two most important are one, you're giving your body rest. That is somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And that's not an insignificant point because it basically means that a 20 minute meditation is the equivalent of approximately an hour and a half nap. I actually think it's a little bit more than that because the studies that they did to prove that people had like, you know, cameras on them and skin acidity monitors and rectal thermometers. And I've never meditated with a rectal thermometer, but it doesn't sound that fun to
1: me. Uh, It's not really the style. I think that's like, that's a Russian style actually. Yeah. Sorry, I grew from Russia. I love Russian
3: style. I actually lived there for a little while. Um, so, but when you're doing native meditation, you're resting somewhere between two to five times deeper than sleep. And so the that means that on the other side of a 20 minute meditation, you're so much more awake. You're so much more revived and it's easier to tap into those signals that you were talking about. The other thing that happens is that when you meditate, you're de-exciting your nervous system. And when you de-excite something, you create order. So think about like a drop of water. If you were to de-excite the molecules in it and slow it down, it would freeze and turn into a snowflake that would create this beautiful pattern an order. Um, when you excite those molecules and heat it up and speed them up, then it gets quite active and quite random. It's not random, but it, it could appear random. So same thing with our nervous system, When more excited and super stressed in this fight or flight stress reaction all the time. It's very hard for the stresses that we've been accumulating to come up and out of the body. It's also very hard to receive that download or that intuition from your, your gut or whatever you want to call it. Um, so when you're meditating two things, one, you're going to be more rested on the other side. Also, you're de-exciting your nervous system in a way that allows the lifetime of stresses that we've all been accumulating to start to come up and out. So it's not just about, Oh, let me meditate so I can calm down right now. When you start to practice this thing regularly, you're actually up-leveling your state of consciousness because you're getting rid of all, like, you know, the dog that barked in your face and the fight that your parents got into when you were 10. So it actually starts to change your your body pretty pretty quickly and pretty dramatically.
1: That's, uh, that's definitely a match for my experience, and I, I've played with all kinds of meditation and ended up, like, I'm lazy, so I do it with a computer now. <laughs> it's like every time I meditate wrong, it shocks me. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's that sort of perspective where like different things you do different types of meditation do very different things. Like you feel different when you do them. And one of the things mm-hmm. that that inspired me to want to bring you on the show is that you talk very specifically about left and right sides of the brain at the same time. And mm-hmm. uh, in the last few episodes, I've been asking guests on Bulletproof Radio about their specific favorite breathing technique, like like what works and what doesn't work. Like I just asked Alberto Vioto, who's a a shaman author, you know, what's the the coolest one for you? So given that you teach breathing techniques, what's the breathing technique that someone driving in their car right now listening to Bulletproof Radio might want to do to improve their performance or to feel better or be happier or whatever? Like what's the most important one?
3: Okay, so it depends on whether or not they can drive with one hand. And if you can drive with one hand, which most people can. Okay, um, so if you you have
1: both arms, you can do this.
3: If you have both arms and if you can drive with one hand, you can try this one. Um, and I call it a balancing breath and you're basically closing the right and left nostrils so that you're starting to balance the right and left, uh, parts of the brain. But before I show you the breathing technique, I just want to elaborate on this a little bit, like why this is a cool thing to do. Um, so like we mentioned briefly, a second ago, left brains in charge of past, future, critical thought, analytical thought, balancing your checkbooks, math, all super important activities. But for most of us, the left brain has gotten out of balance. We've just been thinking, Taking action, achieving, making money so we can be happy in the future. And our poor little right brain is atrophying. And if you look at a human brain, it actually splits right down the middle, 50 50. And I don't think that nature makes mistakes. I don't think that nature would have given us 50 50 if it wanted us to use 90 10. And so this breathing technique is is an active thing. It's not a meditation. It's something you can do in your waking state. And it starts to balance this right and left hemisphere of the brain. Now, one of the cool things that happens when you practice um, the silent meditation that I teach is that the corpus. Starts to thicken. Now, the corpus callosum is this thin white strip that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain, and this is valuable because. The thicker your corpus callosum is, it means that even in a high demand situation, even when your boss is yelling at you, even when you're in traffic, the thicker this bridge is, it means that you're simultaneously able to access this right brain creative problem solving. You know how you get in a fight with your significant other and then an hour later you think of all these like amazing, hilarious comebacks. You're like, why couldn't I do that in the middle of the fight? And so this to me is the value of a fat corpus callosum. Also incidentally, Albert Einstein had one of the fattest corpus callosums that we've ever found. We, like I was there at his autopsy.
1: You may know the answer to this. I I don't actually. I'm I'm interested. Certainly, you can get more gray matter in the brain. But when you're fattening the corpus callosum, are you actually fattening the insulation, the myelination of the corpus callosum, or is it the corpus callosum, the nerve inside the insulation itself?
3: Well, to be honest, I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that the the corpus callosum itself gets physically thicker and and rotation. what meditation does is that it increases neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So like all the folds of the brain, you're start to making those things closer together so that basically different areas of your brain can communicate more elegantly with the others. Um, I don't know. Do you know if this is true? This whole, like, I don't know if it's an old wives tale where people say that we're using somewhere between three and 10% of our mental capability.
1: It is probably an old wives tale. I, I looked mm-hmm. into that for the bulletproof diet research and <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it, it's, like, how do you even measure what percent of your capacity? Like, was that for memory or was that for active thinking? Was that working memory? So, it's probably a wives' tale, um, but it's true. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on that we don't know what's going on, but it doesn't mean we're not using it. There's this thing called the unconscious and there's visual processing. So, I tend to think we're using a lot more, but I also think mm-hmm. that there's a potential to make it more efficient, which is what meditation is going to do. But it mm-hmm. also means that if our mitochondria are not firing at full capacity that we're almost certainly not using uh, our brain. So when I do things mm-hmm. to increase mitochondrial function, I'm like, wow, my meditation just got better. Like I can see my score on neurofeedback go up. So there's like an, en- an energy thing, like the energy that makes you who you are. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't believe most people are anywhere near their capacity from that perspective, which means their brains aren't either. But ten yeah. percent I don't buy, three percent I don't buy, but who knows?
3: Yeah, my teacher has kind of a joke, and he says that the very fact that we're arguing over whether it's three or ten percent suggests that it's more like three. <laughs> it's like, either way, like let's utilize the whole thing, right? Like we yeah. got a hundred billion neurons in this thing, like let's use them. Right. Um okay, so here's the uh, here's the breathing technique. Uh, so if you've got if're driving, you can keep your left hand on the wheel, uh, you would take your right hand and you can use your thumb and your ring finger. and you can do uh, this walking, okay. you can am do I, this am sitting. I doing right? That's incorrect. Sorry, I just flipped everyone
1: off if you're driving. You didn't see that, but anyway.
3: So ring finger and thumb. Thumb and your ring finger, yeah. And you want to use your right hand if possible. So close your right nostril with your thumb and exhale through your left nostril. And then inhale through the left.
1: So when you say inhale through the left, so I don't move my fingers yet.
3: Correct. And now move your fingers. Close your left nostril with your ring finger and exhale through the right nostril. Inhale through the right. And then switch, closing the right nostril with your thumb and exhaling through the left. Good. Inhale through the left. And switch, closing the left nostril with the ring finger, exhaling through the right.
1: Wait, I just got onto my thumb, not my finger. Am I doing this backwards?
3: Ah. Uh-huh. It's all good. So let's, let's start over because I imagine other people did too. All right. So we'll just try it. We'll do one more cycle. So let's, let's take your right it. hand. Just tell us when you yeah. move
1: fingers. So, so where to start when oh, we'll try that.
3: Good. I'll say, I'll say change and that'll be our cue to switch sides. So we'll start with our thumb on our right nostril. Good. And then exhale through the left, inhale through the left and now change, closing your left nostril with your ring finger, exhaling through the right, inhale through the right and now change, closing your right nostril with your thumb, exhale through the left, inhale through the left and change out. And you can start to do this in your own time. And on this inhale, I want you to inhale all the way until your lungs are at their full capacity, float there for just a moment and then change exhaling through the left side, letting that air fall all the way out to your totally to empty. And again, at the bottom of the exhale, let yourself float there and then change and let that air float back into your lungs until you're all the way at your full capacity. And you can do one more cycle. And the next time you come to an exhale on the left-hand side, we can drop our hands and move on. Now the thing I like about that technique is that you can do it fast or slow. So if you're feeling a little tired and you need like a little hit of energy and you need to focus, you need to energize, you can do it fast. It's the same exact pattern. It just looks like this. So it's out in, out in, out in, out in, out in. And if you're pretty amped and you're feeling super nervous and you have a talk to give, or you want to sit down and meditate, you're feeling too amped to meditate. You can try the slow meditation. And so it's going to, it's almost like pulling the bow back on your bow and arrow so that when you go into your meditation, your body can really surrender and let go. And even just doing the breathing by itself, it's helping to balance right and left brains. It oxygenates your blood, your organs, and, uh it's quite good for you.
1: Now, the way that worked was you pretty much always, whatever nostril you start on, you go out and then in on that nostril, then you switch, you go out in, then you switch out in until the very last breath, right?
3: Yep. And ideally you want to start with an out on the left and end with an out on the left, but don't let perfect be the enemy of good. But it's basically just out in on the left, out in on the right out and on the left, out and on the right.
1: All right, and I may have to ask you to write a guest post on how to do that, just because, well, I mean, I've done that in yoga classes lots of times, and different teachers have that, do you start on the left, do you start on the right, do you start going in, do you start going out? I've never sure. seen convincing science about like, oh, this is superior, I think it may be a teaching style thing, but it's, uh, it's actually a powerful thing, I actually felt that. And there's also, a, I believe it's every 19 minutes, your, your, your dominant nostril shifts. Is that a part of your Oh,
3: cool. I didn't know that, but I love that. Yeah.
1: It's something that you would never notice, but someone noticed it. Don't ask me to cite the study either. That was a long time ago. And I learned that it was in some yoga class somewhere, but it's kind of an interesting thing because you're taking over control of your nervous system. It's doing that anyway. And it's some sort of rhythmic thing that you could graph out. But when you do what you just taught us to do, then you're, you're saying, no, I'm going to control that, and of course it's going to have a biological impact. It actually makes sense from a science perspective, even though some people are probably like, oh, I feel skeptical about this. I'm like, well, you try it, sure. you feel different. Well, if in that case, obviously it's placebo and everything is crazy, so
3: sure and here's the thing is that the, the just like the reason why so many meditation teachers and yoga teachers use breath work as sort of a doorway in is because your breath and your thinking are two body functions that are both autonomic and like we have some say in what's happening you know you're gonna breathe basically involuntarily all the time and we can get in there and slow it down speed it up change the nostril that we're breathing through same thing with the mind the mind thinks involuntarily just like the heart beats involuntarily and and we can get in there and monkey with it to a certain degree. Now I'm on a bit of a, um, soapbox and a bit of a life mission to, uh, let people know that the point of meditation is not to stop your mind from thinking because so many people they, like, this is what their whole meditation career looks like. They're like, okay, I hear meditation is good for me. I hear that Dave Asprey meditates. I'm going to try it. And then they sit down in this chair they close their eyes and they go, okay, brain stop thinking. I'm hungry. Maybe I would like some coffee. Nope. That's a thought. Oh wait, no. Now I'm thinking and now I'm thinking about how I'm thinking and I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about how I'm thinking and I'm pretty sure I'm a failure and now I quit. And then they never try meditation again. Funny, that,
1: that's how I started meditating. Like, oh my God, I'm a <laughs> failure. I thought about something and, and, yeah. and thinking about not thinking is a terrible strategy, but
3: it is, it feels like torture.
1: But if you succeed in, in turning off your brain, it's not necessarily a good thing. Like, we've seen then you're dead well we've seen with uh, the 40 years is in like when we're measuring brainwaves like a few people who've done like a very long periods of meditation where they're teaching themselves to suppress brain activity their brain is nearly turned off when they're in a quote meditative state but they're not in a high alpha state they're not generating theta or delta or any of the brainwaves associated with different meditative states they're kind of flatlined and if you spend 20 years teaching yourself the flatline, you could have spent 20 years teaching yourself to be in a high-performance state, and off is not high performance. It, it may be restorative. I don't know. But that's, I, even when I sleep, I'd rather be in very deep sleep, which is delta, not off, or in, um, in theta, which is dream state, which is not off. So those are the two places where you want to be, and if you're awake and you want to go there, go there, but don't just go off.
3: Totally. And I think you might find this interesting. I, um, I taught, I taught the CEO guy in LA to meditate, and he had one of the, um, you know, the body data monitoring bracelets. This particular one he was using was up by Jawbone. And he had it for 10 days, and then he took the meditation course. So my course is, it's an hour and a half a day for four days. That's the in person one. I have an online one too. But he took the in person one, and he had, he was checking his, you know, his exercise and then also his sleep. And then he took the course and the bracelet broke. And so he sent it off to the manufacturer. It came back and then he started using it again. So he had 10 days of data pre meditation and then 10 days of data post meditation. And before he started meditating, his sleep cycle went like this. It went late, medium, deep, wake up for 18 minutes, late, medium, deep, wake up for 18 minutes, light, medium, wake up. And that took him about eight or nine hours. And when he woke up, he was not that rested. He was still pretty exhausted. And then he started meditating. And on the second day of the course, his sleeping pattern changed to, um, or I guess the second day after he had the, the bracelet back, um, his sleeping pattern went light, medium, deep for six hours, medium, light wake up. So he shaved two to three hours off of his sleep, but it was a deeper form of rest. So he was much more rested when he woke up. And that's been my experience as well. Like, you know, my insomnia was a, a, was a result of my body using that sleep time as a time for stress release because I didn't have any other tools to get rid of the stress in my nervous system. And I was in a high demand situation. Like most people are. The thing I like about meditation is that you use these little chunks in your day to get rid of the stress in your nervous system so that you can actually use your sleep as a time for sleep. So it becomes much more efficient and you're so much more rested on the other side.
1: Before I had kids, you know, I, I've always been, in fact, I, I still to this day, my most creative intuition, like, like do things hours are from, like, 1030 or 11 until 2 a.m. Like, no one bothers you. I mean, there's night energy, whatever it is. A lot of writers and people, that's their creative time. It's not necessarily in circadian alignment, but yeah, I use red lights at night, and, like, I, I make it work. And I, that's my high-performance zone. So I decided I was going to change it. And I woke myself up at 5 a.m. every morning for almost two years. So I successfully became a go to bed early, wake up early. I don't actually like it, but I, I made it work. And the reason I would do this is I cut my sleep by two hours. I'm like, I'm still kind of a night person. But when I woke up at 5, I would meditate for an hour. Right. So I, I would do breathing exercises. I would do like, like an art of living. Um, uh, sequence uh, a kriya is called and then I would do like a bunch of energy body field kind of meditation and you know you can replace two hours of sleep with an hour of meditation uh, yep. and that's actually but something that some of the more advanced people uh, in meditation circles have done for a long time there's a, a book um, called something about Tibetan sleep yoga And Hmm. the guy's like, oh, well, you know, I came into this life, I I had a lot to do, I'm too busy, so I do all of my personal growth work while I'm asleep. So he goes to sleep, he's conscious while he sleeps, he does all his meditating in a sleeping state, wakes up, and then does, like, teaching people or whatever. (laughs) So, like, I think there's some room for meditation to improve sleep, because I felt it, and because, like, the masters have written about it, and you're talking about it, because you see it in your clients,
3: and and in myself. That was my okay. next question. <laughs> cool.
1: Yeah. You remember.
3: What,
1: okay, what do you good. see in yourself? How much sleep do you see? need now that you meditate versus before?
3: <laughs> I'm on that we're on that flow state with yeah. each other. <laughs> Even across continents. Or not continents, but the other side of the country. Um I well, the first, like I said, on the first day of my meditation course, and I know this sounds dramatic, but the first day of my first course I was meditating, and then I didn't know what that meant, but I was doing something different than I had ever done before. I was accessing a state of consciousness that was different than waking, sleeping, or dreaming, and I liked it. And then that night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months, and I have every night since, and that was almost 10 years ago. Um so that if, if meditation, if the only thing meditation had done for me was cure my insomnia, I would have been in. Uh, but then and all those other things started happening and I started enjoying my life and things. Um, imagine that. Um, so for me, sleep wise, like I just led a retreat this weekend and we would get up to greet the, the sun because this is a very, you know, lovely thing to do to meditate at sunrise and to greet the sun. Like almost every civilization has done this since the beginning of time, probably because there's a lot of science behind when you sleep, how it's better for you. You know, the rest you get before midnight is more restful for you than the rest you get after midnight. Um, so for me personally, to be honest, I'm naturally more like you, like 10 PM to 2 AM is my go time. And the reason why that happens is that I'm sure there's more specific science, but the Ayurvedic philosophy, which Ayurveda is kind of the sister science to the type of meditation that I teach. Veda again is a Sanskrit word that means knowledge and Ayur means longevity. So Ayurveda is simply the science of longevity, the knowledge of how to perform at the top of your game for the longest amount of time. And so in Ayurvedic medicine, there's something called a dosha and a dosha is like a body type. So there's three main types of doshas and Everyone has all three, but we're usually dominant in one or the other. And just like every person has all three doshas, every day also has different times of the day where the the dosha is more dominant. So ten PM to two AM is called pitta time of day. And pitta is as
1: Is
2: that what that's the ask kicker
0: dosha?
3: yeah, yes. <laughs> We're very similar in that. It's pizza. It's, it's why we both are, you know, drawn to the orange. It's why both of our logos are orange. It's like that fire inside of us. Um, but 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is pizza time of day. So what, what most people will find is if they're not like already in bed or reading a book or starting to dial it down by around 10 or 11, then they're up and they're performing until about 1.30 or 2 a.m. and then they crash. So, um, to be honest, I'm working on that. Like I still, am a, I, I like to go in that time. But on my retreat, I was getting up at five and six to <laughs> greet the sun and I felt so much better. Like, yeah, I felt so much better and I was so much more energized and I needed less sleep. Um, so it, that's like the one thing where I, I, I'm like, please do as I say, not as I do. Cause I tell all my clients about it, but I personally have not been great at the go to bed early, get up early, but for the meditation, it does it does make me need less sleep. And certainly in the times where if I have, you know, a cross country flight or I'm doing speaking engagement after speaking engagement, um, if I'm not getting much sleep and I meditate, I perform so, so much better. Like, I mean, I would, I would say 60% better for me personally.
1: Um, when just because you meditate regardless of when you go to sleep, you're saying?
3: Yeah. Like ideally, and I I found a little bit of a reduction. Like I used to need like eight to nine hours of sleep. Now I can rock about seven ish, six to seven ish. My teacher is 71 years old. He's been meditating for 43 years. He has eight kids and he's taught like 80,000 people to meditate. And he only sleeps for three or four hours a night. Um, it was just, it's just a lifetime because the thing is, the thing about meditation is that the benefits are kind of spontaneous. Like your body's going to heal itself in the way that it needs to heal itself, but the benefits are also cumulative. So the more you do it, the more benefit you get. And so that's a lot of my job is being almost like a cheerleader and the meditation personal trainer to help people stay in the saddle, especially through the first few weeks and months of learning a practice, because most people experience something called unstressing and it's not that nice. Most people get a little tired. They get a little cranky, they get a little sad and it's kind of like the stress has a bit of the same flavor on the way out as it does on the way in. To me, it's like Listerine. It's like, you know, people listerine around that it burns. You're like, Oh, I know it's working cause it's burning. <laughs> That's a little bit like what the first few days and weeks of meditation can be like.
1: <laughs> but you said something really interesting there about you know, the, the more you do it, the more it accumulates and it, it's kind of like exercise. For the brain, we already talked about that. But exercise, it's not just the more you do it; it's the better or the more intensely you do it, the more you benefit, mm-hmm. right? So if you do it like like if you're doing squats, you do them with correct form, you get more benefit than doing the same amount of time in squats with improper form. And, and that's why having a meditation teacher is so valuable, because mm-hmm. if you're learning to do meditation with correct form, then the time you invest in it provides more cumulative returns over time, and um, what I, I've certainly valued, I've learned so much from teachers, not not just from reading a book or something, but from that's valuable. But if you like have someone watching you, going, uh, no, do it that way. That's like you're doing it wrong. Is very precious knowledge.
3: <laughs> and also the techniques themselves are very different. Yeah. Mindfulness, as we said, is very different than meditation um, because mindfulness is more of like a waking state practice. It's where you're um, directing your focus on a certain thing. Either you're looking at a candle or you're counting your breaths or you're thinking about your chakras or you're bringing your awareness to the present moment, which are all really powerful and beautiful exercises, but it's, it's more of a waking state practice. And this is interesting. When you look at brain scans of people who are practicing mindfulness versus the style that I teach is that in mindfulness, like a very small part of the brain lights up very, very bright. And the silent meditation I teach, the whole brain lights up, but not as bright. Um, so it's more of like a whole brain experience, more of a brain cohesion. So what people notice that the effects are different is that mindfulness tends to make you more, um, like your ability to focus and your ability to really stay on one topic for a long time in your waking state improves. Whereas, um, what I teach is like a self induced transcendence style of meditation. I means you're sitting down and you're inducing this fourth state of consciousness. It's very restful. So in the other side, you're more awake and actually you're able to hold many things in one awareness at the same time. So it's not, and we're not that interested in focusing. We're interested in this simultaneity of consciousness and this increased, uh, creative problem solving and this intuition tendency to be more of the more of the benefits of the style that i teach
1: so there's two other things i want to talk about i'm looking at how much time we have left before everyone's going to get to their office and their commute (laughs) i know like at least half of our listeners are not on itunes watching video or or on youtube where we're going to have all the the cool where to put your fingers at the right place (laughs) it's all right emily i have to ask you Five ways meditation can help you have mind-blowing sex. I talked
3: about this <laughs> you did before. Do your research, I didn't know you?
1: people want to know this, so you're gonna have to tell us.
3: <laughs> okay, so nobody's talking about this, which is why I wanted to bring it up. And I think nobody's talking about meditation and sex because for so long it's been associated with this monastic practice, or I'm not allowed to think about sex when I'm meditating. And because the style that I teach is made for people who live in society and have busy minds and busy lives, I just thought it was be an important conversation to have. Um, so, okay. So a number one, what actually statistically, the most common reason that couples do not have sex is that they're too tired right? We're all working, working, working. And then we get home and we're exhausted. So if the meditation that you're practicing is going to give you rest, that's deeper than sleep. It's like, At least for me, when I do my second meditation, which I try to do somewhere mid-afternoon, early evening, when I come out of it on the other side, it feels like I've taken a vacation for my brain. It feels like I have this surge of energy on the other side, which gives me so much more energy and so much more creativity to come home and make dinner or enjoy dinner or hang out with my fiance and, yes, have sex. If you work until nine o'clock at night and then you come home and you just crash on the couch after watching one episode of Game of Thrones, you're not bringing very high- Who
1: watches just one episode of Game of Thrones?
3: Let's be here. Well, now all of us because we have to wait until the next <laughs> one. <laughs> I listened to the Tim Ferriss episode where he says he he just lets them all accumulate yeah, and too. then he he like, binge watches them. And I think you guys have inspired me. But then the thought of waiting for three more weeks is really hard for me. All right, I, I got you. Right. Now, now I believe you. Okay. Um, so, so the idea is that you meditate so that you are, it's like this, it's like a power nap for your brain, but on the other side, you don't have the sleep hangover. So very simply, if you meditate, you're going to have more energy for sex. Um, now the other reason that a lot of people don't have sex is like the old cliche of like, not tonight, honey, I have a headache, right? And meditation is actually proven to to cure like something like 80 to 90% of migraines if they're stress related. Um, because obviously meditation is a stress relieving tool. And if you start meditating, it can reduce your stress, which reduces a lot of migraines. Now, this, this next bit goes for men and women. When, f- when women, when their cortisol levels get over a certain amount, which cortisol is, you know, obviously one of the number one stress chemicals that gets released in your body when you launch into fight or flight. When female cortisol levels get over a certain point, women are physically incapable of orgasm. It doesn't matter how good your partner is. It doesn't matter how many fancy tools or tricks or toys you have. If your cortisol levels are above, I think it's like 40%, uh, you just, you can't orgasm. And that to me is sad because most people are really, really stressed. It's the
1: same for guys, by the way. Yeah, it is the same for guys.
3: Yep. It's erectile dysfunction. So men are not off of the hook. Um, mm -hmm. so that's four, I think. What would be the other one? Oh, this is one of my favorites. Um, is that your lover is going to think that you're psychic. Right, like you. The more you meditate, the more you increase this um, your mirror neuron functioning. So here's the Broadway showgirls description of mirror neurons, and you might be able to elaborate on this more scientifically than I can. But the Broadway showgirls description is it's like your brain has boomerangs, and it goes out, and your your lover has boomerangs in their brain, and so these boomerangs come out and they dance with each other, and then the boomerangs go back into the brain. <laughs> what
1: style of dancing? <laughs>
3: uh, tap dancing nice. or tango. Probably tango is way sexier. than There you go, right? That that works. (laughs) Kind of a hot tango, right? (laughs) Yeah. Hot tango. Um, so basically it's like this sixth sense. It's like, you have this intuition? It's like you can intuit what your lover needs or wants before they even know it. And so they're going to think you're sort of psychic because you're going to be so much more keyed in. You're going to be so much more present and available, um, in the experience. I mean, talk about needing to be mindful. You know, if you're having sex and I know everyone's been here, we're having sex and like, you're stressing about work or what you're going to do tomorrow, or are the kids in bed or are the kids listening and you're not present in the right now you're setting your yourself up for failure versus Meditation gives you this ability to surrender, to let go, to be in your body in the right now. Um, so that the mirror neuron phenomenon is, is, it's a relatively recent discovery and they're saying that mirror neurons are going to do for psychology, what DNA did for biology. And we're just on the precipice of really understanding them. But it's one of the reasons why porn is a multi-billion dollar industry, because when you watch someone having pleasure, it brings you pleasure. So this is the same thing. It's like you'll become a much more altruistic lover when you're meditating because just watching your, your partner, have having joy and having fun this is going to be more fun for you and if is you that do it fine? right
1: like you're you're amplifying <laughs> essentially your neurons are sort of copying the other person they're copying you and you copy each other and you get more and more synced up and this is why i believe it was like one in five people report having like full-on spiritual transcendent experiences during uh, during sex or orgasm and oftentimes they like, don't tell their partners. The partners like was it good for you and they're like i just met god <laughs> but but they're not necessarily matched with that mirror neuron amplification effect probably has something to do with hitting those weird states
3: well they are meeting God like I mean not to get too hippy-dippy but I mean any act of real creativity. And I believe that sexual energy and creati- creative energy are the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk to great athletes, you talk to great performers, great singers. You know, when they are really in that flow state, a lot of them say, like, I don't, I don't remember singing the song. The song was singing me. I don't remember playing the game. The game was playing me. And we can absolutely access that in sexual situations as well. Because really, you know, we think we're falling in love with someone else, but we're really just falling in love with ourselves in the, in the, in the disguise of being someone else. So I think it can be a very sacred act. And the meditation gives you like a really fast window into that.
1: It's, uh, I, I would agree. Uh, when you meditate better, you're a more intuitive lover, but let's go beyond the bedroom. Um, what about just intuition in general? What does meditation do for that? Cause I, full disclosure, like I'm working on software that teaches intuition and there's, there's great nice. state things you can do there. Um, so whenever that comes out, it'll be ready. if It's cool. But what is meditation? Like, what does your teaching do for people who want to be more intuitive and even what is intuition? Like, do you have a good definition for For that?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I believe that the present moment is the future in the making the present moment is the future in the making. So if you're not present in your body right now, then you're not going to be very available for what the, what the future is. Right. And if you're planting very stressy, um, nervous seeds in the right now, then this is going to impact your future intuition. I would define it as the ability to cognize how nature wants to use you in this moment. Right. And that might sound quite, uh, esoteric, but I would define it as being able to move beyond your left brain critical voice and to be able to tap into that still small voice inside because the thing is that intuition whispers and criticism screams. And it's very challenging for non-meditators to understand the difference between their critical mind and their intuitive mind because they're either the same volume or their critical mind is so much louder. And so when you start meditating, you start taking your right brain to the gym. It. it It doesn't clear your mind. It's not about clearing your mind in the meditation itself, but it does turn down the volume on that critical voice. And then you can actually hear that little tiny whisper of an intuition. And then the more you cultivate that, the more you listen to it, the louder it gets. And, you know, everyone does this in different ways. And I'm fascinated to know, you know, how you start to develop it and how you start to teach it. Um, but in my experience, meditation is just, it's not necessarily going to turn up the volume in the sitting itself, but as a means by which you're, you're clearing out all the stress in your nervous system so that in your waking state, that right brain channel is much more open.
1: Um, that, that makes sense. and um, I, I don't know that, that neuroscience has fully demonstrated the existence of intuition or that they've quantified the states. Some of the, the people that I work with certainly have quantified states. That they correlate with with a sense of intuition but i think the whole jury's out but anyone who's experienced intuition and uses intuition in their decision making knows and and we have these weird things where we can measure our body knows things are going to happen before they happen um one of the the best proofs of intuition i've seen is they have a a a machine that generates random images either puppies or murder scenes and the experimenter doesn't know what's coming up next. The person watching these doesn't know what's coming up next. But you can see your brain waves turn stressful, mirror neurons, when you see something horrible. Very so nice. what they found is, is uh, I don't remember the number of seconds, but uh, uh, 100 microseconds or something, or milliseconds, not microseconds, um, 100 milliseconds before the image comes up. The nervous system responds with stress. Like It knows what's coming when the experimenter doesn't, and it's using a random number generator. What the hell? Wow. But stuff like wow. that is is—it's uh, kind of creepy, but it also means that maybe your body is telling you some stuff if you can learn to listen to it, and that is part of a sense of intuition. And it's uh, its fascinating stuff because we're wired that way, and meditation is a pathway to learning how to listen to the signal that's always been there.
3: Absolutely. And a couple of things I want to share because I know a lot of your audience is so interested in in diet and food and a lot of, a lot of what my, my clients report after they learn to meditate is that, um, their ability to eat intuitively goes through the roof because if you're stress eating, if you're just eating as a means by which to fill yourself up, um, this is not, it's not a great plan. And a lot of us will end up overweight. When you start meditating, you start to feel satiated internally. You start to feed yourself with this primary food so that the secondary food becomes a little less important. Um, but also because it's not this like oh my gosh I'm gonna die if I don't eat everything in front of me this like fight or flight panic eating you're able to intuit what does my body actually want right now and do I need a little coconut oil or should I have an avocado or you know do I want some coffee you know what you're able to intuit it instead of it being uh, of a place of addiction um, and then the other thing I want to share is that three weeks ago I was the maid of honor for my best friend's wedding and everyone called me a ninja no, sorry I was yeah they call me a ninja maid of honor because they said that every time she was about to request something I had it in my hand, ready to give it to her. Oh, wow. Anytime, like before there was a tragedy, before something went haywire, like I was like right on it, like the second before and not that, that has nothing to do with me. That just has to do with you know, 10 years of meditating yes. that you're, you're constantly, the present moment is the future in the making. And if you're, if you have the ability to be present in your body right now, you're able to intuit the future in the making.
1: So speaking of the future in the making, are you going to burning man this year?
3: Yes, I am.
1: So you've, are you going to Burning, burning yeah, Man? Yeah, I'll be at Burning Man this year. Uh, I'll be my, my second time I was there in, uh, 2011. And, uh, it, it's kind of hard to go when you have kids and stuff, because it's time away from sure. family. And
3: are you going to take your kids?
1: I don't think so. My five year old, alkaline dust in your eyes, whining the whole time. it sounds like the opposite of Burning Man to me, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe later when they're
1: 10. <laughs> but, um, so you're going to go, but you've written like things you can learn from burning man. So why are you going to go? What what are what are you going to learn from burning man?
3: Well, to be honest, my fiance and I are having to make the decision of like, are we doing a, an official honeymoon or are we going to burning man? And we decided we want to go to burning man just because it's so much fun. Um, and the reason I, this will be my third year. And the, what I love about burning man is <laughs> a, it's fun. B it's creativity on a scale that I've never seen yeah. before. It's, it's not only creativity, but it's, there's a generosity and a creativity on a scale that I've never seen before. And there's this, there's this funny saying, I'm sure you've heard this when you're there, but people say like the playa provides. So like the place where Burning Man takes place is called the playa. And, it's, it's kind of like the secret if you're into that or like the manifestation, like the second you're like, you know, I would love a cup of coffee. And then you run into Dave Asprey on a bike handing you a cup of coffee, <laughs> or I would love you know, some sunscreen. And then someone walks up to you and like massages sunscreen on your shoulders. It's like the second you even have a desire, it shows up I mean within seconds. And I have this theory that the reason why manifestation occurs so quickly there because most people are, you know, getting on board with the whole thoughts become things. And if you are thinking about something. I actually believe that manifestation precedes desire. And so if you have the desire, it's already on the way to you, but we can talk about that on another podcast. Um, but I have this theory that the reason why it happens so quickly there is because almost everyone is in this right brain. They're not there to make money. They're not there to sign a, close a deal. They're not there to get through the week. They're, they're there to celebrate the right now. And the whole thing, I mean, this, for those of you who don't, don't know, burning man, it's It's this festival that happens in the middle of a desert, and every year they build this giant man, and at the end of it they burn it. So it's sort of this festival itself is celebrating the temporal nature of art, and I would say life. And and because there's no cell phone service, it forces you into the present moment. There's no texting anybody. There's no getting someone's number to connect later. If you want to connect, you have to connect right now. So the combination of present moment awareness, creativity, and generosity, it allows you to get into the. I mean, talk about a flow state. Like that's why I think the manifestation thing happens so quickly there. So that I'm just interested in playing more with that. And I actually want to lead like big group meditations there. So maybe this will help that let's like, we should pick a date and a time like, we'll do a giant group meditation on Thursday at 11.
1: Absolutely. You should, you should do that. Just put it out there and there, you just uh, stated the desire. So apparently you already manifested it. So you're ready to teach. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. I think we have time. This will be a little bit of a longer episode, but Um, I think we have time to talk about some of the metrics of meditation. And I actually wrote them down if you don't have them all memorized. But can you talk about some of the numbers like, like what does meditation do for your accuracy, speed things like that
3: mm-hmm. well now no, here's the thing nobody loves soft science more than the meditation community oh, yeah. <laughs> and and it depends on what type of meditation you're talking about but as a general productivity I mean I've heard anywhere between thirty to forty percent increase in productivity and I liken this to a um, like a cell phone. Like if you have a hundred apps open on your cell phone and then you go to type an email and the cursor is way behind, you're like stupid phone. Can't even type an email. It's like, well, it's not really the phone's fault. You're using so much of the computing power and the battery life to open all these or to run all these old irrelevant windows. So what we do when we meditate is like closing down those windows so that you have more battery life and computing power for the task at hand. Okay. But but let's hear your metrics.
1: Oh, well, I think that actually this is just from checking out your work. So um, Mm, mm -hmm. some of these things I've seen, like improved immune function, less depression, we talked about. But 27% less chance of being hospitalized. Yes. um, That 90% insomnia reduction. Yes. And something that I've seen specifically with the computer-driven 40 years of Zen stuff that that I do with uh, CEO types um, a reversal of body age or brain age, and uh, mm-hmm. I think actually from your website you talk about one study that says up to eight years, but literally mm-hmm. you, you can take people who are in like their 80s, and when you get them the signal, they're suddenly like people who are 60 or 50 again which sounds like a giant claim, but yeah. that's actually happened. Like, like there are people who are 80 um, who've done the intense neurofeedback thing, which is a form of meditation. It's just like high intensity. <laughs> <But> <laughs> like, like you didn't pos- meditation on crack. You the possum that was tough? Let me stuff it down your throat. Right? <laughs> so it's like really strong. But um, well they're like, oh, I think I'll go back to college. Like like you're 80. Like, like You're not supposed to be going to college. It's awesome that you're doing it. But that whole reversal of brain age is is something where I wish that we were teaching meditation in retirement homes. Um, My anti-aging nonprofit work for 10 years, I've worked with, with older people who are reversing themselves biologically. And even in that community, only a third of them are probably open to meditation and the rest of them are sort of like... You know, I was born in, you know, nineteen thirty and basically meditation's for them hippies or you know, that, yeah, totally. not quite like that. For truly but,
3: people. Yeah. But you know, I thought it was a big claim too. It sounded like a fountain of youth, hooey dooey. But then I started thinking about it and I was like, you know what, it's not that meditation is reversing body age. What meditation is doing is that it's slowing down the acceleration of aging that stress has on the body. Yep. And if you want proof that stress ages the body expeditiously. Look at any president the day they take office and that same president four years later. You know, they all age a decade in four years sometimes more. And that's not a coincidence. Yeah. I also I started meeting women who are like 60, 70 years old who've been meditating for 40 years and they look like these radiant porcelain beings. I was like, can I just take your picture and say like, she's 68. Who wants to learn? I won't even talk about it. Yeah.
1: You, you can almost do like a sideway said, like which of these two people meditates, you can spot it. someone who spent a lifetime doing that. I don't know if it's in the eyes, or it's in the skin, or it's biology, but I believe there's, there's great value in it, and learning it from a teacher is more efficient than learning it uh, from a book, and learning it from a book is more efficient than just sitting there trying not to think, which is generally a way <laughs> to piss yourself off, so.
3: Yes. All
1: right, Emily Fletcher, there's two questions I have left for you. One of them is, where can people find your work, where can they find you online?
3: So I actually created a little special something for you and for your peeps. And they can find that at zivameditation.com slash bulletproof. So uh zivameditation.com has my video blog and all of our social and everything, but zivameditation.com slash bulletproof is a special offer. So I actually created the world's first online meditation training, which I'm really proud of. Uh it's eight days of video training and guided visualizations and a really interactive online forum. So if people want if they don't have, I think the best way to learn meditation is face to face from a teacher, but a lot of people don't have that. And so if you don't, this is why I created, it's actually called Ziva mind. And it's, it's designed to make you a self-sufficient meditator to where you don't need me anymore, but I'll be there in the online forum to help support you when questions come up. So that's, you can find that at Ziva meditation.com slash bulletproof. And there's a special offer for bulletproof listeners. (laughs) And then I'm all over. Yeah. My pleasure. Um, and we're, I'm all over social media, just at Ziva meditation.
1: Okay, that's easy to find, Z-I-V-A. And the final question of the show, and since you told me you've listened to like 90% of the episodes, you already know what it's going to be. But if you want
3: to keep,
1: keep more asset life, you've been preparing these answers for weeks. Yeah, but what are, what are your three answers? You want to perform better at whatever it is you're here to do. What does a famous meditation teacher say?
3: No pressure. <laughs> well, the first and very obvious one is meditate. And and I want to clarify that because I'm actually, I was surprised at just how many of your guests said meditate. Um, you know, people who I didn't even know were meditators, like almost all of them said some flavor of meditation. And so but I just let, want to clarify let's... that
1: let's face it. Ask kickers, meditate, like the
3: cast that's out of the right. bag, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, I think Ariana Huffington tweeted from Davos last year that all the big news were that all the CEOs were outing themselves as meditators. Um, so I just want to like build on that a little bit and it's not just meditate, but I would say, you know, like you said, find a teacher, like get, become a self-sufficient meditator so that you're not reliant on a YouTube video or an app or even my online training. Like we, Learn in a way that you can do it anywhere, anytime. Because the more you do it, the more you're going to kick ass at life. So that's one thing. Two would be, you can't move away from the negative. You have to move towards the positive. You can't move away from the negative. You have to move towards the positive. So oftentimes, I'll hear people say, "Like New York is just so stressful. I can't handle it anymore, and this, that, and the other. I'm going to move to LA." And it's like, you know, you're going to have the exact same problems in LA, right?
1: I'm, I'm we confused because isn't can't a negative thing? So if you can't, which means can't, not, <laughs> that's like a double negative. So are you saying focus on the positive, not the negative?
3: Yeah, I'm saying move <laughs> towards the positive and not, not the negative. <laughs> and I actually came up with this. Well, it's not my saying, but I teach, I used to teach acting classes and talk about a flow state, but so many times the actors were you know, actors are the only people who want to be sad. They want to be angry. You know, humans want to be happy. Actors want to be sad. And what we do in life is that we're constantly moving towards the positive. We, we want to feel better. And sometimes when people have problems, they spend so much of their energy trying to solve the problem that they're growing. It's like they're watering the weeds. And instead of watering the weeds, you want to water the flowers. You want to put your attention on what you want to grow in your life. So, And this goes with like dieting, this goes with exercise, this goes with dating. Instead of saying, I'm not going to eat this thing anymore, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, which feels like you're depriving yourself and like you are, or like I'm, I'm going to sit down and meditate, I'm not allowed to think. Instead of moving away from the negative, instead we move towards the positive. You move, you start incorporating healthy things into your diet that you look forward to. In the meditation, you get a technique or a tool that you like and that works for you instead of trying to punish yourself for having thoughts
1: uh, it, it's totally true uh, the the fastest way to fail is to focus on not doing something because your nervous system doesn't believe in not so it just focuses yes. on doing the behavior you don't like and so I, I don't think anyone's ever said that before but I fully fully agree with that one
3: mm-hmm uh, and then the third one would be I uh incorporate more raw fats into your diet. Yeah. I know the the moment I knew I loved you is when we were sitting down next to each other at the, you know, we spoke at the Harvard business school biohacking conference and we all went out for dinner afterwards and Dave pulled out a giant thing of butter and put it on his grass fed steak. And I had like a thing of butter in my purse (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) We're like closet (laughs) butter people. And yes. You know what's happening at
1: Davos next year? All the CEOs are going to be outed as butter eaters. I swear.
3: Yes, <laughs> that would be so amazing. <laughs> I would love it. But I find that for for someone like me, like when I when I get imbalanced, I tend towards insomnia, and I talk very fast. I tend towards nervousness, as I you know you could see from my Broadway career, and I just get like. And so the meditation helps to ground me, but, but so do the raw fats. And as yeah. you know, the brain runs almost exclusively on like EHAs and DHAs. And so when you start to feed the brain, what it needs, it's so much easier for the body to fall into line. And it, it's been pretty revelatory, like coconut oil, raw butter, raw cheese. I have like a dairy dealer that comes to my house and yep. gives me unpasteurized dairy, which we can talk about more later. But, uh, but yeah, I would say incorporate more raw fats, avocados, raw nut butters, coconut oil, brain octane, um, these kinds of things to help uh ground your body and fuel it the way that it needs to be fueled
1: uh and that also means uh, by the way if you take something that's nice and fatty like a grassroots steak and you cook the crap out of it that you the fats are no longer unoxidized so it's the unoxidized state of them that matters Uh, so thank you for bringing that one up too because it's um it's so important to not have those free radical fats in the brain and when you want to get into those really altered meditation states I think if you have eaten tempura or French fries, you're just not going to make it.
3: Yeah. Oftentimes you're like, Emily, you know, I've been meditating twice a day and I don't feel the change. I'm like, well, let's talk about everything else. They're like, you know, I'm eating, I'm drinking dry Coke and I'm eating Taco Bell and I'm like, ding dong head. You can't do that. Your body's a chemistry set. The whole thing is interacting with each other.
1: Uh, Well, I I love those answers and they're even cooler (laughs) than I would have hoped. And oh, good. thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio, and I think we'll we'll arrange, uh, we'll manifest a way to hook up on the playa and hang out, because that would be a lot of fun. I'll, I'll come to your meditation class.
3: Yeah, I would love that. And then I'll see you at the conference in the fall. Oh,
1: absolutely. Uh, I'm happy that you're going to be there speaking. Yeah. And uh, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't heard this, go to bulletproofconference.com, October 23rd to 25th in Los Angeles is when our conference is going to happen. So check out the new Bulletproof conference. Last year was 500 people. It'll probably be bigger this year and all sorts of adult toys. It's going to be awesome. Emily Fletcher, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. Have an awesome day.
3: You too. Bye, friends. Bye, Dave.
1: If you liked this episode you knew what I'm going to ask you to do, head on over and check out Emily's work. It's good stuff or we wouldn't have had her on Bulletproof Radio. And while you're at it, head on over to the store because we have something new. We have Bulletproof activated charcoal and we had it before but now it's in a 90 count bottle which is a little bit more portable a little bit more accessible so if you just want to try it you can try it i swear that when you try activated charcoal and you're meditating that you will feel a difference in your meditation if you take a capsule because it helps to pull toxins out of the gut which frees your brain to focus more on doing what it does sounds weird i give it to my kids when they're cranky and they get uncranky and it's kind of funny what toxins do to those little nuances during meditation. So it actually is very directly tied to what we're doing here. Bulletproof upgraded coconut charcoal, check it out in the store, new size.